Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to episode 214. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. And on today's show, I'm sitting down with a member of the Bossed Up trainer team who is well-versed in applying the agile methodology, the system of project management that's primarily used in software development to all kinds of teams with the goal of creating a more positive work culture. So if you are a manager, a boss, a leader, or an aspiring woman on the rise who wants to know how to inspire ingenuity, creativity, trust, and just have a damn good time at work with your team, today's episode is for you. So first, a little bit about my guest today. Years ago, Agile Life founder, Hilary Ritt, who has her PhD, struggled to lead her instructional design and development team through challenges like role clarity, uneven workload, scope creep, and undefined objectives until she observed the engineering team down the hall effortlessly coordinating their team, completing high-value work, and celebrating. After working with the engineering team to understand how they did it, Hillary began to apply the Agile methodology to her team. She had so much success applying this methodology to her own team that later in life, when she struggled to manage everything, work, life, home, kids, she again turned to the Agile methodology to make meaningful progress towards her goals and be present with her family and reduce feelings of stress and overwhelm. So let's jump right into today's conversation. Hillary, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. I'm really excited to chat with you about uh, building a positive team culture, right? Like I think as leaders, as managers, as women on the rise, a lot of the women in the Boston Up community are looking to tap into the benefits of employee engagement, but figuring out even the first steps to making that happen can be a bit tricky. So before we dive into that, give us a little bit of background. How did you get interested in this work to begin with? Great. Thanks, Emily. So I first started thinking about positive culture when I first started leading a team. So prior to that, I had been mostly an individual contributor. You know, I had excelled as an individual contributor. And so now was my first opportunity to kind of lead and support a team of about 10 people. And so I walked into this team super excited to show results and to, you know, really wow everybody. And I realized that we had some culture problems. And so some of those culture problems came from kind of logistics. Like we had a lot of scope creep. We didn't have really concrete ways to estimate deadlines. So we were choosing them sort of arbitrarily and then 
missing deadlines. There was uneven workload over time for individuals, but also between individuals. Mm. And so all of that resulted in people really feeling unappreciated and undervalued. Um, And so I started thinking about, okay, how do I improve this? And it's a culture problem, but the culture really was linked to our work and how we were managing our work. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting making that shift between being a hard driving, high achieving contributor Mm -hmm. to then seeing the systems at work affecting your team's day-to-day experience can be a little helpless, right? It can make you feel like, dang, I knew how to do work well, but now I'm seeing how the workplace is designed and it's not treating people very well. How do you even begin to shift such a huge culture problem? Like how do you even begin to tap into a systematic challenge when you see things like scope creep, which I'd love for you to elaborate upon just for folks who don't know what that means. Can you tell us more about what creep is? Sure. Yeah. And you're right. It is really challenging because as you know very well, there's not a lot of training for new managers. You know, a lot of times we take these really high achievers and throw them into a management role because we know they're ambitious and smart and good at what they do. And there's not explicit training, which there really needs to be. So scope creep is really where we kick off a project and then over time, as the team is working on the project, new things get added to it, whether it's new activities, new features, it kind of just grows and grows. And so whatever deadline we originally put on the project kind of is meaningless because the work has just expanded beyond what we initially scoped out. Totally. And it's interesting, you know, I've been hosting for the past few months, a webinar series uh, that I'm excited to be hosting again called What Women Managers Need to Lead. And it's all about the management skills and the leadership skills that women on the rise really need to hone. And I've been shocked how many participants say things like, if only our deadlines weren't kept secret by our management, right? Right. The, the <laughs> lack of clarity in roles and the inability to be pulling in the same direction as a team. There are some big structural obstacles that we're running into in the workplace. So have you seen those challenges arise in your work as well? Yeah, exactly. That was one of the things on the team that I was working with at the time um, that I started really kind of coming up with a systematic plan to work on positive culture was lack of role clarity, deadlines that kind of seemed very fluid. And so I started talking about it with people that I worked with, other people that were kind of my peers. And one of the people that I had some great conversations with was our software director. And Mm. he, with his team, a lot of software teams use agile methodology. And so he started explaining to me some of the, you know, principles and values of agile methodology, how it works. And I became really fascinated by it as a project management system that I saw the potential to really kind of turn things on its head and be able to kind of manage things in a different way. Yeah. Tell us about that. What is the beginning of implementing an agile approach to work really look like? Right. So... 
Agile at its core is about iterative development, right? So when Mm -hmm. it was first kind of coined, one of the big challenges that the originators of this methodology saw was that they were using what's now called waterfall methodology, right? So that's where you plan the project out in very intricate detail for, you know, it could be six months or a year and try to stick to that schedule as closely as possible. And so as we all know, people, clients kind of change their requirements for good reason. You know, maybe they learn something about their market and so they need to kind of adapt what they're building or the solution that they're putting out. And so the software developers were feeling like they were always saying no and they couldn't kind of change and adapt. And so Agile was put into place really to allow us to get input from the field, get input from our users and our buyers and and adapt so that we're really putting out the most valuable product possible. And so that's what really appealed to me because of course, you know, we're all in whatever business we're in to, to serve people and to add value right. to the world. And so having a way to do that, that was also systematic and it didn't always feel like a fire for my team to put out was really appealing <laughs> right. to me. <laughs> That's interesting. I think we all know that feeling of fire drills and how unnecessary we hope that they are sometimes at work. And it, it's an interesting contrast between implementing that kind of system versus, um, you know, employee appreciation Fridays or free lunch Tuesdays, taco Tuesdays, you know what I mean? Like, how does it directly relate to creating a positive culture? Right. I think that's such a good question because, you know, I think that's what a lot of organizations do when they realize they have a culture problem. They're kind of like, let's go do a one day retreat or let's have a picnic or bring in bagels this Friday. And all that stuff's great. Like everybody likes fun, but that doesn't fix the culture problem. Because when you think back to say with my team, the signs that I saw of a culture that wasn't working, it was very embedded in the work. It was the feeling of being underappreciated, undervalued that came from that scope creep, uneven workload, lack of role clarity, you know, all of those kinds of things. And so to think we can just come in and fix that with something superficial, like a pizza party, you know, it just doesn't really work. So, you know, I always say changing culture really has to be embedded in the day-to-day work that we're doing, right? And so I think it's helpful to kind of think about like, okay, what are the signs of a positive work culture? Because it's not just fun, right? So, you know, what does a positive work culture look like? Yeah. So for me, when I think about a positive work culture, I think about trust, trusting our teammates, trusting our leadership, transparency, right? So you talked about some people saying that they don't know when the deadlines are, you know, having all of that transparent is really important continuous improvement. So kind of that idea that we can fail and that's okay. We can take risk and learn from them and come back Mm -hmm. stronger, being comfortable with imperfection, having those opportunities to fail. Those to me are all signs of a really positive work culture. So changing that and kind of you know, building those characteristics up comes from how we do the day-to-day work and just our day-to-day interactions with each other. 
it's interesting. I can almost hear the challenge of being a frontline worker, like being an individual contributor and seeing those problems at play and not quite knowing like how to create psychological safety or how to make it okay to fail. There's a lot of workplaces that still run by the old shame and blame playbook. And obviously I think the data is pretty clear on how much that hinders creativity, um, bottom line growth, employee engagement. Like we need safe identity workspaces where we can grow by taking risks. But even as a manager, especially as a middle manager or a first time manager, how can you begin to transform a culture you know, what are, what are some of the steps as an individual manager to start creating that space and and getting everyone pulling in the same direction? Because it's just, it's still very, very um, amorphous, somewhat intangible to me. So I wonder how you've, you've implemented this kind of process in the past. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And there's something called that I call it the agile onion. And so I know we're on a podcast and you can't see my hands, but if you can imagine like layers and the outermost layer being mindset and kind of working into values, principles, all the way to the innermost layer being tools and processes. Is this a Shrek reference? This is an onion layer <laughs> reference. It reminds me of Shrek. I love it. Yeah. So what a lot of people think is like you have to start with mindset or you have to start with values, which are very amorphous. It's like, how do you change that? But what a lot of evidence shows and just personal experiences are that by switching up tools and processes, you actually can work outward to change values and principles. So I have a few kind of like concrete things that I started to do that I can tell you about that I think someone could do just within their own team and start to see those benefits, which then can exemplify why to use this process or the benefits of it to other teams or upper leadership For example, one of the principles that we lived by is take it to the team. Mm. A lot of times what can happen is that, you know, with our team, there's some kind of challenge or problem. Someone comes to say me as the manager or the leader of that team. And what I felt, which I think a lot of people probably feel the same thing as a new leader is like, I need to solve this. They're bringing a problem to me and I need to solve it. And a lot of times that backfires on us because we're doing what we should be doing as leaders. We're probably more kind of strategically oriented. We might not be in the weeds. And so we're taking a lot of time to try and understand the details of this problem. We're talking to one person who's kind of brought it to us and really maybe not being informed enough to make the best decision. And so we lived by take it to the team. And a lot of times I ended up being the facilitator of these conversations at first. And then other people kind of picked that up and ran with it. Your teammates who are in the trenches with you, who know the details of this project, who are working with you are going to be the best people to problem solve this, not your 
manager. And so having a manager kind of demonstrate how to take it to the team and have that problem-solving conversation really builds that trust and transparency that we talked about. Yeah, I love that. I love the clarity of that directive too, because not only does it probably mean your solution is going to be more informed, but it also just signals trust in action, right? Right. It signals decision-making power is shared right? and that everyone's opinions are valued. So I, I think just that concept of sort of putting the problem in front of you and your team instead of putting it between you and your team. Like, this is your problem, deal with it. It's more like, hey, we're sitting on the same side of the table looking at this problem together. How do we solve for this is a really important, like slight but significant shift in, in approach. Yes. And I love your phrasing of not putting the problem between you, but in front of all of you, you know, being on the same team. That's a great way to put it. Awesome. That's really helpful. Did you have another sort of concrete (laughs) directive that you wanted to mention? I know you mentioned a few. Yeah. Yeah. I have a few more that kind of, I think about. So another thing, so an agile methodology, like when engineering teams use it, they work in sprints, which are kind of periods of time that once work is assigned to that sprint, it doesn't change. Interesting. Because I've heard this, a lot of the tech companies I work with Mm -hmm. who bring me in to train or speak, they'll be like, oh, we're finishing a sprint right now. And I'm like, cool. I'm not entirely sure what that means. So explain. I love that. Right. Well, and it can be used different ways. So a lot of people use the term in a different way than what a software team might use it, which Mm. is kind of like, you know, we all know sprint in terms of running is like run fast, right? So a lot of times when people who are in the software engineering world use the term sprint, it means like, we're just going to work really fast on this one thing until we get it done. But in engineering or software development, that's that's not what it means. It's not about working faster. It's about working with complete focus. And so a software team would plan out usually a two-week sprint, sometimes longer. They would have the perfect amount of work assigned to that sprint to complete you know, comfortably within the time period. So it's not about working faster. It's about having the right amount. But once the sprint starts, nothing changes within that sprint. So you wouldn't add additional tasks or additional activities to a sprint once it's started. And so- So it's like the antithesis of scope creep. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And- It's great because people can get so much work done because they're not having things thrown at them last minute that, you know, we've all had that experience where we've got our day planned out and we know what we're going to work on. And then someone comes and knocks on our door and says like, I need this by end of day. And you have to drop everything and work on something else. And That's not effective time management or productivity, but it also influences culture because people don't feel autonomy over their time. You know, it's like someone could show up at any minute and totally, you know, switch their gears for the day. And feeling interrupted constantly is just like a microaggression. It's annoying. (laughs) You know, people feel like their autonomy is being picked away at when that's the case. 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so the idea behind a sprint and, you know, you know, to use this principle, you don't have to be working in sprints necessarily, but the idea is that, you know, in a given week, say, we don't add new activity or new task to someone's plate kind of once right. that week has started, right? So people have some autonomy over their time. They can plan out how they work best. Like a lot of people know that like I do my best creative work in the morning. And so it's better for me to stack up emails and things like that in the afternoon. You know, we know how we're most productive. And yet a lot of times in the workplace, we don't have the opportunity to work in the ways that we know are productive because of other people needing things from us at specific times. So the more we can have that autonomy over our time and kind of know what's on our plate for the week and stick to that, the the better off we'll be. I love that. I love that. And I feel like even without completely overhauling your culture with agile design, you can incorporate sprints as just dedicated intervals of intense focus into any workplace. Like that is a perfect small step towards more respectful time management for your entire team that I think we all can learn from. Right. I mean, I think it's just being mindful that, okay, I as a manager need to think ahead about our goals and what the team needs to be working on to give them advance notice so that everyone can plan their time most effectively. And, you know, if I'm not planning ahead, I can't support my team in planning ahead. So it's kind of a mindfulness exercise and kind of just getting ahead of it. So yes, I feel like without kind of overhauling everything, we can all start to be mindful about how frequently we're coming to people with kind of last minute requests or last minute deadlines. And a lot of times that can be alleviated. Not every time, but, but many times. Yeah. And how does that worked for you having implemented some of these changes and, and really with the goal of creating a more positive team environment, how has agile design worked out for the teams that you've worked with? Right. So some of the results that I saw were one producing really high quality work. And so we saw ourselves hitting deadlines and celebrating and just getting that high quality work out there, which is, you know, number one. Then number two, distributed Mm. leadership. So what I started to see is that it wasn't kind of me as the manager as central to everything, but that leadership could be distributed and people could be leaders for different projects or different functions or different time periods. And so that was really exciting, I think, for everyone on the team to have those opportunities to show leadership. Uh, And also was really great for me not to have to be kind of the center of everything, which can be really stressful. And then the third and the last one I'll talk about today in terms of kind of the results that we saw were those mindset shifts. So we talked earlier in the interview about, you know, a lot of times people want to change mindset, but it's so amorphous. But through some of these tools, processes, systems, we were able to change mindset to take intelligent risk, be okay with failure, continuous opportunities to learn. And I think that really derives the trust in the team. When you feel trust, you feel comfortable taking those risks and knowing that if it doesn't work out, it's going to be a learning experience. I just love the idea that 
before you change your values or your proclaimed mission statement, you're basically saying change your tactics, right? Like figure out the processes that are getting in the way of distributed leadership, for example, or, or trust or safety and change those. And then the rest follows. I just think that's really brilliant. And I feel like you've shared a lot of tactical strategies that we as emerging leaders or current leaders or managers can begin implementing in our teams right away. What resources would you point folks to if they want to learn more about this or keep in touch with you? Yeah. So my website is youragilelife.com. So that's a great place to get started. Uh, I have a couple downloadable kind of guides on there uh, that people are welcome to download and kind of go step by step through the process. Uh, So that's a great place to start um, if you want to get started with using some of these strategies. I love it. Yeah. I'm on your site right now. And I just think this is great. You've got a to-do list challenge. You've got agile life for couples starter kit. I'm going to have to dive more into this. This is really great. (laughs) Well, Hillary, I just want to thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your your time and your expertise with our audience. Um, It's truly a delight to have you on the Bossed Up Trainer team. And I can't wait to see hopefully much more of you this year. Yes. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. To learn more about Hillary and how to apply the Agile methodology to your work and life, head to youragilelife.com. And now it's time for this week's Boss Move of the Week. This one comes in from Lisa in Washington, D.C., who actually starts off her Boss Move kind of bundled into a career conundrum. So I'm going to let her ask your question, share her Boss Move, and then I'll jump back in here. Take a listen. Hi, Emily. This is Lisa calling And I wanted to ask you more about how you started up your advisory committee to advise you through your business at the initial steps and also as you continue to expand your business. I recently took a huge boss move in uh, going out on my own towards self-employment. I'm, of course, totally elated and absolutely terrified. And I think that bringing together an advisory committee is a great next step to continue to advise me throughout this crazy, exciting process. So we'd love to hear more about that and what is the value proposition for them doing so. Thank you so much. First of all, congrats, Lisa. Going out on your own is always a mixture of terror and thrilling excitement. And so congratulations on making this big step. I mentioned in some past episodes and also in the Boss Up book about how I started my business at first with a co-founder, Simone, who we ended up parting ways very quickly after founding Bossed Up, basically three months afterwards, because it turned out we had very different visions for the company, but we wish each other the best. And I think she's awesome. But after not having a co-founder three months in, I was terrified. So I asked my mentors if they would serve in an advisory capacity. And you have a great point here, uh, Lisa, which is what the hell is the value proposition for them? It's not really a strong one, if I'm being honest. I think mentorship is in many ways, um, it requires people who are willing to be giving and thoughtful and kind with their time and resources. But we also know that mentorship results in good career results for those mentors as well as the mentees. So honestly, I asked my existing mentors and some prospective mentors 
if they would be an advisor for my company. And I just formalized the role on a one-page Google document that said, here's what I am really asking of you. Can I call you and get a call back on a pretty regular basis as needed? Maybe it's once a quarter in the beginning. Maybe it's once a month in the beginning. But would you be willing to take my calls? Um, Second is, would you be willing to join me for a once or twice a year meeting with the entire advisory board? And that was pretty much it. (laughs) That was really all I was asking for. And over the years, I have called upon my mentors fewer and fewer times. But the mentors, the, the advisors who have served in this capacity, I think they see the value proposition as betting on someone who's younger than them to do well and then be of service to them in, in, in return. So they looked at me 10, 20, 15 years, their junior, and said, I think you've got something here. I'd love to be helpful. And then they know that I owe them for life. <laughs> I basically will do anything for my mentors and for my advisors, which I almost use interchangeably because that's kind of how I see it. It's very interchangeable. So I'll give you an example. One of them, Anastasia Pochepsova Ghosh, who is a professor of marketing in uh, Arizona now um, at a business school down there. She and I started kind of geeking out over research together, getting to know each other. Um, she presented at Boston Bootcamp a few times, and I, I think that was of interest to her. You know, she wanted to be involved in the community. She was helping business school students get better at their job. She was helping companies get better at selling toothpaste, and she wanted to do something she cared about, right? So she, her values aligned with Boston's values. So I think that was helpful and 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 motivating for her. And now. You know, I just received an email from her last month saying, hey, I'm organizing a conference in D.C. about marketing as it relates to campaigns. I know you used to work in politics. Do you have anyone you think um, you could connect me to who might be a great speaker? And I said, oh, my gosh, one of my other mentors who's a, a scholar at Brookings who used to be my professor he would be great for this. So I immediately, actually not immediately because I was on vacation in Cuba at the time, but when I was back, I connected them via email and boom, like anything and everything they ever ask of me, I will do my damnedest to deliver on. (laughs) So I think that's it, right? It's just like mentorship. I think the advisory board helped formalize the structure and it really helped me give myself some accountability because it can feel so lonely when you don't have any accountability. And it doesn't need to be huge. I think I had five people at first and it grew to, it grew to maybe 10 and I don't keep in touch with them as I as best I should really. I should probably email them all more often, but I hope it helps you as you navigate. I hope this concept helps you as you navigate it. Keep in mind this works differently for different folks. It is 100% about setting expectations and then exceeding them. So you design the advisory board that works best for you. You know, you design the job description that you think is most reasonable and ask, be unafraid, be unabashed, be unapologetic in asking for people's support. If they believe in you, if they believe in what you're trying to build, it'll be of benefit, of mutual benefit for them to be a part of it and to meet the other advisors that you're bringing together as well. So don't feel like you're begging, but ask with the confidence that you can create something awesome that they are going to want to be a part of. And best of luck. Also, if anyone says no, respect that. Like only they can set their boundaries. You can't set boundaries for them. So if they are not down to volunteer in this capacity, no hard feelings. 
but don't apologize in your ask, right? And don't feel apologetic if they draw that boundary with you. That is perfectly within their right to do. So congratulations again on taking the leap. I hope this is helpful in a little mini part of the pod, a mini pod within a pod. Um, and thank you for calling in your, your conundrum and your boss move. It inspires so many others to do the same. If you have a boss move to share, call it in now at the Bossed Up Podcast hotline, 910-668-BOSS or 2677. As always, we want to encourage women like you to share their own come up story because you never know who you're inspiring to do the same when you make your voice heard in this way. And it also just shifts gender norms around women talking positively about themselves. So, and if you haven't already, make sure to join us in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook. It's been called the best place on Facebook by more than one member, and it's really a beautiful space where women continue to lift as we climb. Until next time, keep bossing in pursuit of your purpose, and together we'll lift as we climb.